Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 22, um, and into chapter 23. And if you'd like to follow along in your pew Bible, you can find this passage on page 747. Luke chapter 22, verse 66. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You are right in saying I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. And the whole assembly arose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. And with one voice they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. This is God's word. Morning, everyone. See all of you. So... When it was still in, uh, when it was still ongoing last year, and 
blowing up all over the media. What was your reaction when the, uh, the Casey Anthony verdict was announced? Uh, you know, the prosecution thought they had the slam dunk case. Casey Anthony was on trial for the murder of her two-year-old daughter, Kaylee. Uh, Kaylee's lifeless body was found tossed in the woods near Casey Anthony's home. Uh, they found that her mouth and nose had been duct taped, and there was some evidence that before the duct tape was applied, she had been chloroformed. Circumstantial evidence uh, for this case was, was, was great, or at least they thought. Uh, Kaylee was missing for 31 days before they found her. And, and during this time, Casey never reported her missing. In fact, when they questioned about where Kaylee was, she was making up all these lies as to her whereabouts. Um, and during these 31 days, it was shown that she was living quite this kind of party lifestyle, not typical for one who just lost a child or a child went missing. Um, she only admitted that her daughter was missing when confronted by her parents after her parents recovered a car that Casey was driving. And when they opened the trunk of the car, they detected this foul odor in the car, or in the trunk, excuse me. And further evidence found that on Casey's computer, there were recent Google searches on how to make chloroform and death and even neck breaking. And also the duct tape found on Kaylee's face was this unusual type. And they found this exact type of duct tape found in Casey's household. Forensic evidence confirmed that the trunk of the car which had been recovered had traces of chloroform inside the trunk and also that odor that they detected, it was proven to be uh, an odor of human decomposition. So you would think, you know, if this was like an episode of CSI that the credits would be rolling already and the show would have ended. And that's what the prosecutors thought. They presented this very professional, methodical case against Casey Anthony. The defense attorney came up, and he presented this very disjointed case. Uh, Casey's attorney argued that Kaylee had accidentally drowned in a pool and that Casey's father had something to do with his granddaughter's body being thrown into the woods. He further argued that Casey was used to covering up pain and acting as if nothing was wrong because she suffered from years of abuse from her father and brother since a young age. But he never showed any evidence to substantiate this. In the end, the jury, which had been sequestered throughout the trial, concluded there was not enough evidence to convict Anthony of murder, manslaughter, or child abuse. They only found her guilty on four counts of lying, and subsequently, subsequently she was released from prison and credited for time served. And no matter where you stand on, on the verdict, I mean, you, you if you were watching the news or you just, you know, were around at that time, you knew that there was just this great outcry of injustice when they heard the verdict. I mean, millions of people were like crying foul. And how did she get away with it? How could the jury not convict her? I mean, they couldn't understand why the jury couldn't find her guilty. And when you think about it, you know, over recent years, some would say there have been several high-profile cases that the, ju- that the juries have gotten the verdict all wrong. You know, recent cases like Casey Anthony and Amanda Knox. Those of you who are a little older would remember the O.J. Simpson trial and how this was this great outcry that O.J. Simpson uh, was not convicted for the murder of his wife. 
And, and even further back, if you're a little older, you remember the riots in L.A. that were caused when the police officers, police officers were acquitted of beating Rodney King. I mean, probably all of us can think of cases where we feel that the jury just got it all wrong. And this is what we're going to talk about when we get into our passage for today. Because Luke wants to show us in our passage that no matter how many cases there have been or ever will be, there's one trial and one conviction that will always be the most unjust of all. So over the last couple of Sundays, um, we've been looking at the events leading to the arrest and trial of Jesus. And if you remember from those weeks, uh, Luke emphasized in those passages that Jesus was always in control, even when it seemed like things were totally out of control for him. And that Jesus, if you remember the sermon last week, was not a victim, but willingly gave up his life. And in our passage for today, we're going to see that Luke emphasizes the absolute innocence of Jesus and the great injustice that took place during his trials. And one could say that there are actually six separate trials of Jesus. Luke records four of them, which we just heard in our scripture reading. There was the first trial before the Sanhedrin, which uh, we just heard, or as Luke puts it, the council of the elders and the chief priests. And then Jesus was brought to Pilate for a second trial, and then Pilate sent him to Herod for a third trial, and then Herod sent him back to Pilate for a fourth trial. And then prior to all these trials, right when Jesus was first arrested, the arresting party had him go before uh, Annas, the high priest, and that was really his first trial. And then Anna sent him to Caiaphas, another high priest, for his second trial. So that's where we get these six trials in total. But since Luke only mentions the four here, that's what we're going to focus on. At the end of Luke 22, Jesus is before this group known as the Sanhedrin. And, and who are these guys who are the Sanhedrin? Well, the Sanhedrin was basically the supreme court of that day. Uh, you can flip to that next slide. They were the Supreme Court. Uh, the formation of the Jewish system, um, it could be traced all the way back to Deuteronomy 16, uh, when God tells the Israelites to appoint judges over the towns and over the tribes. And depending on the size of the town, there could be you know, several judges to look after various communities. And if there is several districts in these towns, there could also be like a regional court over the local courts. And then there was this great Supreme Court, in Jerusalem, and this was called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was made up of 70 men plus the high priest. There's always actually an odd number appointed so that there could never be a tie. And so it consisted of 70 plus one. And the men consisted of chief priests, elders, teachers of the law. There were men selected from those who had already been serving in the lower courts. So in a sense, they had to prove themselves before being appointed to the highest court in the land. And the judicial system was actually a, a very good one. Numerous procedures were in place to try to ensure a fair trial and prevent one falsely accused of being convicted. Uh, some of these procedures that they had was that there always had to be a public trial. You can flip to the next slide. There always had to be a public trial. Nothing could be done in secret. The accused always had to have an, a, a person appointed to defend him. Uh, no trial could ever take place at night. They put in this rule because they didn't want to seem like they would unnecessarily rush through a trial. 
And there had to be this confirmation of two to three witnesses to pronounce guilt. And this last one came straight out of the Bible. Um, If you turn to Deuteronomy 19, you'll see that it says this in Deuteronomy 19, uh, verse 15. It says this, it says, One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or or offense. He may have, or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And then Jesus gives, or excuse me, God gives this warning about people who would even think about being a false witness. He says, if a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse a man of a crime, the two men involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against his brother, then do to him as he intended to do to his brother. You must purge the evil from among you. So in other words, what God is saying here is that if you even think about being a false witness and you're caught being a false witness, then we're going to do to you what you intended to do to the accused. And further, even if the accused was found guilty and sentenced to death, you couldn't execute the person right away. You had to wait a full day. So in other words, like the trial would take place one day, you would wait a full day, and then you executed the person on the third day. And this was a lot of time for further evidence to be presented if there was any, or for any additional witnesses to come forward to help ensure that an innocent person would not be put to death. And, you know, all of these things the Sanhedrin knew, these are the things that they were, up, they were to uphold and practice as they were appointed judges in the highest court for the Jews. These were the things they would say they even prided themselves on as they sought to uphold justice and uphold God's laws. You know, and for this trial and for Jesus, we see here, they broke every one of them. Jesus' first and second trial before Annas and Caiaphas were held in secret at night. Here in our passage in Luke 22, they tried to show some semblance of following proper judicial system, excuse me, by um, having this third trial, which took place right at the beginning of the day. But, but by then, their verdict, their minds had already been made up. Jesus was never appointed a person to defend him. And they couldn't even get two to three witnesses to agree. In the account of the earlier trials, it says in Matthew 26, 59 to 60, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark further adds in chapter 14, Then some stood up and gave false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple in three days, and will build another not made by man. Yet even their testimony did not agree. And so they couldn't find any witnesses. They broke all their principles. But the Sanhedrin, they didn't care because they just wanted Jesus dead. They wanted Jesus dead because they had this nice power system going with great economic rewards. And if the people all of a sudden turned to follow Jesus instead of them and their system... They would lose their power base. They would lose their financial perks. They weren't happy that Jesus rebuked them and called them out. 
They weren't happy that he came and chased out the corrupt businesses from the temple, which was part of their livelihood. And for the Pharisees, they also wanted Jesus dead because he attacked their theology. He called them self-righteous. He called them out publicly. I mean, these men hated Jesus. So they tried to figure out ways to bring false charges against him. But they couldn't find anyone and they, to come and give supporting evidence and to even agree on their testimony. So here in our passage, in verse 67, they asked Jesus directly, If you are the Christ, tell us. And Jesus replies, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. In other words, he's calling them out once again. He's saying, you're not interested in knowing the truth. You're not really trying to bring a fair case against me. You just want to accomplish your own agenda. But then he adds this sentence. He says, But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And for Jesus to refer himself, to refer himself as the Son of Man references Daniel 7, where the same title is used. And Jesus, in saying this, is declaring that he will eventually be seated with God at his right hand and be able to rule with God. His authority is from God, so therefore he has authority over them. And one commentator stated that for Jewish ears, just this title, Son of Man, for him, a person to call oneself that was highly offensive. He said the claim this was worse than saying you could just walk into the temple and reside in the Holy of Holies. I mean, this was blasphemy, and the Sanhedrin knew it, which is why they followed up with this question. You say, are you really saying that you're the Son of God? Are you sure? And Jesus gives them the affirmative in verse 70. And then in verse 71, they say, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. But there was one problem, and if you can read in the last, the last line, their system was such that a person couldn't incriminate himself. It was writ- even written, we hold it as fundamental that no one shall prejudice himself. If a man accuses himself before a tri- tribunal, we must not believe him unless the fact is attested by two other witnesses. For our law, our law does not condemn on the simple confession of the accused, nor the, upon the declaration of one prophet alone. Once again, this was something that they knew, something they were to uphold. But they didn't care because they wanted him dead. They had no other witnesses to go with, so they had to go with Jesus' own testimony. And when I think about that, the, the amazing part of this for me is that Jesus himself provides the testimony on which to convict them. If Jesus had denied this, they wouldn't have had any case. Even now they really don't have a case. But they broke all the rules. So now they feel that they have a case. Jesus gives what was needed so that his life could be given. And when I thought about this, it made me recall that verse in John 10. John 10, verse 18, it says, No one takes my life from me. This is Jesus talking. But I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And just in these verses in Luke, we see that he willingly laid down his life. And so now the Sanhedrin were ready to put Jesus to death. But unfortunately for them, they had no authority to do this. They used to have authority to do this. But when the Roman Empire took control of Jerusalem, they took away Jewish power 
to practice capital punishment. So they had to get Roman approval. So now they take Jesus over to Pilate. And Pilate, just so you know, was the Roman prefect over the region. Pilate's not a Jew, and so he actually could probably care less if Jesus was messing with their religious practices. He didn't even like the Jews because they had stirred up trouble for him in the past. And the Jews really didn't care for him because he was only there because Rome was ruling over their land. But there were two things that Pilate did care about, since these things were the things that he was mainly responsible for. He was responsible for the collection of taxes in Jerusalem, and he was responsible for keeping the peace in the land. And so the wise Sanhedrin, knowing this, modify and kind of expand the charges against Jesus. They tell Pilate in in verse 2 of chapter 23, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. And we know from a previous sermon that the second charge was just totally false since Jesus' actual words, if you remember, were what? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, if you owe Caesar taxes... You pay Caesar taxes. So he wasn't telling the people not to pay taxes to Caesar at all. And Pilate, you know, just hearing these charges, probably figures he could take care of the third, the second charge by just focusing on the third anyway. So that's what he does. Understand that for the Sanhedrin to say that Jesus is claiming to be king, they're accusing Jesus of being an insurrectionist, a revolutionary, so to speak one who tries to rally the people against Rome. And if Pilate believed this was true, he would definitely want to get rid of this man before he stirs up any trouble, lest Pilate be shown as not, you know, fulfilling his duty of keeping the Pax Romana or or, or the peace in the land. So Pilate questions Jesus about this, and Jesus replies, yes, it is as you say. And this is just kind of a mild affirmative given by Jesus. It's not really the strong answer that that Pilate was looking for. You know, Pilate is looking at Jesus. He sees Jesus as being absolutely alone. You know, he has no army. He has no entourage. All his disciples deserted him after he was arrested. And and Pilate, you know, when he looks at him, he, he, he senses that Jesus is no threat. You know, he supports Jesus' innocence. So he tells the Sanhedrin, I find no basis for a charge against this man. He pronounces him not guilty. And and, and really, they should have ended the trial right there. Not guilty. Jesus should have been released. But of course, this doesn't satisfy the Sanhedrin. So they press their point even more more in verse 5. You know, he stirs up the people. He started in Galilee, and he's come all the way over here. And Luke, tying this, or mentioning that Jesus is, is, is a Galilean, may also be making some connection with the verse that he previously wrote. Um, if you flip back a few chapters to Luke 13, look at what it says in verse 1. In verse 1 of Luke 13, it reads this. It says, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And it refers to this incident that took place where Pilate sent some of his soldiers into the temple where some Galilean Jews were worshiping, and he just slaughtered them. And when he slaughtered them, their blood was spilt over the altar, which is what verse 1 of chapter 13 is referring to. 
and, and in mentioning this and kind of tying this together, I kind of saw that, you know, Pilate, once again, has no reason to support Jesus. He doesn't like the Jews. He has no favoritism towards Galileans. But yet he finds him innocent. One who would have the least interest in protecting Jesus pronounces him not guilty. But he's trapped. I mean, he knows he's innocent. But he has these 71 people, like, surrounding him, you know, spewing hatred, you know, intimidating him. And he needs to find a way out. So when he finds that Jesus is a Galilean, he realizes he can just push him off to Herod, who was in town to celebrate Passover. And so now we turn to Herod. And the first thing I want you to know is this Herod is not the Herod the Great, as we might think, because Herod the Great actually died in 4 BC. This Herod, his full name was Herod Antipas. This was Herod the Great's son. And he was given the land of Galilee to rule over by his father after his father's death. And the gospel tells us some interesting facts about Herod. In Matthew 14, we learn that Herod married his brother's wife, Herodias. While um, Herodias was still married to Herod's brother, the two fell in love, that is, Herod and Herod's brother's wife, Herodias. They fell in love, and they thought it best to divorce their spouses and marry each other, which they did. And John the Baptist comes along, and he calls them out on this, which really angered Herod. So Herod had John the Baptist uh, captured and arrested and thrown in jail. He really wanted to kill John the Baptist, but, but he was scared because the people really respected and looked up to John the Baptist as a prophet. But later, through some trickery, Herodias, his wife, was actually able to have Herod behead him. For she also hated John the Baptist for calling them out. And this haunts Herod. For it tells us in scripture that when Herod hears about Jesus and all the miracles he's performing, he thinks this is John the Baptist risen from the dead. And if you still have your Bibles open to Luke 13, look at the end of the chapter in Luke 31. Excuse me, Luke 13, verse 31. And you'll see this. It says, At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. So now he also wants Jesus dead. So here's another person who has no interest in protecting Jesus and even wants him dead. And now in our passage, he has Jesus in his hands. So what does he do? In verse 8, it says, When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he was wanting to see him. From what he heard about him, he had hoped to see him perform some miracle. So Jesus is here standing before Herod, and Herod looks at him. And once again, you know, Jesus has been up all night. He's been beaten by the Sanhedrin. He's been mocked. He's been spit upon. There's no one there to support him. I mean, he, he probably looks just like a total mess. And Herod is like, you know, do some tricks for me. You know, do some magic. And then we see that for Herod, Jesus now has just become like a sideshow, some, some circus performer there to entertain him. And Jesus does nothing. He says nothing, does nothing. You know, most people in this situation would look for any avenue to try to defend himself. But Jesus does not. The one who looks helpless is still in control 
still guiding his path. He was, as Isaiah 53, 7 reads, oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And though Jesus is silent, once again, the Sanhedrin or not, they're still protesting, they're still accusing. And Herod, you know, he looks at Jesus, and just like Pilate, he knows that he's no threat, no revolutionary. So he dresses him in a robe to mock him, and he sends him back to Pilate. And here again is another instance when the trial should have been over. Pilate pronounced him innocent. The trial should have ended. Pilate sent him to Herod. Herod pronounced him innocent. The trial should have ended. But even though these men who have no reason to support Jesus find him not guilty, he's still forced to go back to Pilate for this last trial. And so Pilate is still trapped. He's still convinced of Jesus' innocence. And we see it just in these remaining verses for this last trial. Pilate three times tries to convince the people that Jesus is innocent. In verse 14 and 15, I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither Herod, for he sent him back to us. Verse 20, wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. In other words, he's saying, he's innocent. We need to let him go. Verse 22, for the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? He knows Jesus is innocent. In Matthew 27, verse 18, Matthew also adds, For Pilate knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. But now, not only does he have the Sanhedrin surrounding him, intimidating him, he has all these townspeople who have gathered and rallied in favor of the Jewish council. And so Pilate is looking for a way out. What if I just beat him? What if I just have him flogged? For even though he's an innocent man, Roman law allowed for, that a person could be punished if it could be seen or suspected that he would cause some trouble in the future. So he says, I'll just punish him and send him off and he won't be a trouble anymore, a troublemaker anymore. But it doesn't satisfy the crowd. And then Pilate comes up with what must have been seen to him as this brilliant plan. He's like, I know what I'll do. I know that during the feast, I can release a prisoner. The people can choose a prisoner to be released. And Pilate knows that there's this person already in prison, Barabbas, who was convicted of insurrection, who, is, who was a revolutionary and a murderer, and was, once again, and, and, is, and was already proven guilty for these things. And so Pilate conjures up this plan to unveil their hypocrisy He's like, if you're really concerned about an insurrection against Rome, you would have to choose the convicted to remain in jail as opposed to one who has not even been proven guilty. And there's also an irony here. For Barabbas literally means son of the father. So the gospel writers are asking, whom should be set free? The son of a human father or the son of God the father? Pilate thinks he's got just just wonderful plan that, that can't fail. But Pilate guesses wrong. They choose to set free the guilty insurrectionists instead of the one innocent of insurrection. And more than that, they want Jesus crucified. So still intimidated by the Sanhedrin and the crowds, 
still fearful of what would happen if the people cause a riot and it gets back to Rome, that he wasn't doing his duty of keeping the peace, Pilate succumbs and he gives in to the people's demands. He was more interested in self-preservation than seeing that justice was done. So can you see why Luke, through this passage, would say that these trials were the greatest injustice of all time? a sham of a Jewish trial, all of the things that they were supposed to uphold, they ignore, they disregard. Numerous times Roman officials pronounce him innocent, yet the Jewish authorities still want blood. A man fully innocent of all charges was executed, while the man guilty of the crimes that Jesus was accused of was set free. I mean, Luke's telling us, you know, if we have strong emotions about Casey Anthony, the Casey Anthony verdict or any other trial, how much stronger should our emotions be over the outcome of what happened during the trials of Jesus? But when you think about it, isn't this the gospel? That Jesus, the sinless lamb, was sacrificed so that we could be set free from the penalty for our sins, so that we can be redeemed. Just like Barabbas, Jesus lays down his life and gives his life as a ransom, as a ransom for many, as it says in John. In the Matthew account of Jesus, um, excuse me, in the Matthew account of Jesus' trial before Pilate, Pilate makes a statement that we all must answer. He says, when face to face with Jesus, what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? And throughout these trials, we saw different responses. We say the Sanhedrin, who totally reject Jesus and hate him and want him dead. We see Pilate and Herod, who though they see Jesus as being innocent, just really see him as someone who's basically being harmless. You know, there's nothing wrong with him, but he's also not someone worthy of following. You know, we see those in the crowd who four days ago hailed Jesus as king as he entered Jerusalem. But now they're calling for his death. And, you know, no matter who you are, that's the question you're going to have to come to terms with. You know, yesterday I was at Starbucks working on my message for today. And while I was there, I got to share Christianity with a woman. She told me she was born a Jew and raised a Jew, but she also believed in Jesus. And so I was thinking, oh, this this is very good. And then... Um, as we continued talking, she showed me this Christian science magazine she was reading. And she's like, oh, yeah, this is so interesting. And then she was sharing how, oh, and you know what? Yeah, you know, I believe in parts of Buddhism, too. He's, so she's like, I really believe in the uh, reincarnation part, you know, and I hope I don't, like, come back in a, as, like, a tree or something like that. And so I was listening to, to her, and, you know, we talked for a little while, and, and she had some questions, and I opened my Bible, and, and I shared some scripture with her. But, you know, as we were kind of ending our conversation, you know, once again, I basically told her, it all comes down to what you're going to do with Jesus and what you do with the things that he says about himself. You know, if Jesus says, I am the truth and the only truth, what about other religions that say that he's not? If no one comes to the God except through him, what do you do with that? You know, is Jesus the only way or is he just a way? You know, and that's the question, you know, each of us. 
in each of our friends, in our family members, our co-workers, we need to settle. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Christ? That's the, that would be the takeaway I would say for today's message is what do you do with Jesus and what effect should that have on your life? And how does it affect those around you and those who may not even know Jesus yet? But, but as we know, there will be a day of reckoning that comes when all of us will see Jesus face to face. As Pilate asked this question, we need to ask it of ourselves and once again, our family, our friends, our co-workers. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus, the Son, down to this earth to live a perfect life. And through this passage, Lord, we just see what a, what a mockery of justice that was had through his trials. And how it just, you know, though he was completely innocent, vindictive men just wanted him dead. And even though Jesus certainly had the power and authority not to be uh, crucified, he willingly laid down his life and gave his life as a ransom for many. And Lord, that's just amazing that Jesus would do this so that we could be set free and we could be redeemed from our sins. Father, if there's anyone out in the congregation who does not recognize this truth, who does not have Jesus in his or her life, may you reveal your truth to this person or these people. May they come to know Jesus the only Lord who laid down his life as a ransom for many so that we could be redeemed. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.